Hello, I'm Claire Armistead. Before we hear this week's podcast, we just wanted to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For more information on building beautiful websites, go to squarespace.com. The Guardian. It is the half-awake watching the half-asleep being half-murdered by the half-witted. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. Heads, shoulders, knees and toes. And if that's your idea of anaesthesia, an artful job requiring many years of training and a great deal of skill, then we've got our work cut out this week. We shall hope to keep you fully awake, fully alert, fully enlivened by speaking with some very un-half-witted people. We're looking at the literature of medicine and we examine the profession from very different perspectives. Being a doctor is to try and help people try to become the best of themselves that they can be in many, many instances. It's a, it's a deeply humane, humanitarian project. It's not just about science. Or, to put it another way... All heart surgeons are bastards. We'll hear more about that godlike or terrifying figure, depending on your experience, the surgeon. We'll investigate the importance of transparency, the difficulties many encounter in being honest about their own shortcomings, and we'll hear from a leading thriller writer about the psychological characteristics that make them such a great subject for fiction. Along the way, we delve into why medicine itself makes endlessly fascinating subject material. The Tibetans use hip bones and femurs to make trumpets. We start with Gavin Francis, a travel writer, a novelist and a working GP up in Edinburgh in Scotland. His journeys have taken him to the very ends of the earth and many of the countries in between. He applies the same forensic approach for which he's been so celebrated in his travel writing to the sweeping landscapes of the human body and all the way back to the elements of his everyday life as a local doctor. My medical office is a converted tenement flat on a busy Edinburgh street. The consulting room faces east. On summer mornings, it's luminous and warm, and in winter, it's sepia-toned and cool. A steel sink is set into one corner beneath cupboards stocked with sample bottles, needles and syringes, while in the other corner is a refrigerator for vaccines. There's an old examination couch behind a curtain, and on it, a pillow and a rolled-up sheet. One wall is lined with bookshelves, while others are decorated with da Vinci's anatomical drawings, notice boards and certificates from medical specialist colleges. There's a chart of the city marked with the boundaries of the practice, a diagrammatic urban anatomy of coloured motorways, rivers and bee roads. I journey through the body as I listen to my patients' lungs, manipulate their joints or gaze in through their pupils, Aware not just of each individual and his or her anatomy, but the bodies of all those I've examined in the past. All of us have landscapes that we consider special, places that are charged with meaning, for which we feel affection or reverence. The body has become that sort of landscape for me. Every inch of it is familiar and carries powerful memories. Imagining the body as a landscape or as a mirror of the world that sustains us can be difficult in the centre of a city, in terms of geography, my practice area is relatively narrow. It's still possible to visit all of my patients by bicycle. But the cross-section of humanity it encompasses is broad. It takes in streets of opulent wealth, as well as housing estates of startling poverty, 
solid professional quarters as well as the student apartments of a university, to be welcomed equally at the crib of a newborn and in a nursing home, at a four-poster deathbed and in a squalid bedsit, is a rare privilege. My profession's like a passport or skeleton key to open doors ordinarily closed, to stand witness to private suffering and, where possible, ease it. Often even that modest goal is unreachable. For the most part, it's not about dramatically saving lives, but quietly, methodically, trying to postpone death. Gavin, that was the afterword to the book rather than the introduction, which one, one might have expected. It's interesting in that it places you in a way as a travel writer and your last book or first book was indeed a travel book, True North. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, in a way, this is a journey through the body, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So that is from the epilogue, as you say, but the foreword of the book explains that when I started out uh, as, a, as a boy, I wanted to be a geographer rather than a doctor. And I fell very much in love with atlases, geographical atlases. And then when that enthusiasm changed gradually to become an enthusiasm for anatomy and for understanding the body, the, the inner landscape or the most intimate landscape, if you like, then that old passion I had for geography carried over. And still, when I think about the way I write about the body, there are a lot of similarities to the way I, wrote, I write about landscape. So my first book, True North, or my second book, Empire Antarctica, explores these physical landscapes from all sorts of angles, historical, contemporary, meteorological, geological. And I suppose the same attitude brought to the body is similarly fruitful. Let's just talk a little bit about the tradition that this particular book is written in, in terms of medical books. Um, I know you're a, a fan of John Berger's A Fortunate Man, which is written by Berger, but about a doctor. Mm-hmm. Are you doing something like that, do you think, or is it completely different, your project? I think in some ways, I mean, Berger's A Fortunate Man is an extraordinary um, project whereby somebody phenomenally skilled in seeing, in witness, like Berger, who was a controversial art critic, So somebody who's extraordinarily well trained in how to see and notice subtleties. And when he turns that attention onto a consultation by spending weeks in the company of a doctor, watching this doctor in consultations, both in the surgery and on emergency home visits, he turns that attention to it and he produces something quite amazing, which begins with an examination of what the doctor is doing in a consultation and then broadens it out to much bigger social, political concerns. I think actually the the purpose of this book is not quite that. The purpose of this book is reaching back a wee bit further. It's reaching back more towards the kind of enlightenment perspective before we had so many divisions in different spheres of knowledge and showing how bringing cross-disciplinary, cross-pollination ideas from history or from cultural studies, from poetry, from literature and bringing them into medicine can transform your perspective on the body and on what happens in a consultation, a a good, worthwhile healing consultation. And interestingly, it's been picked up both by novelists and by non-fiction writers. So you get a citation from Hilary Mantel, but you also were, it was nominated as Robin McKee, Observer Science Editor's Science Book of the Year. It's not really a science book, is it? No, it's not really a science book in the sense that I think when, perhaps when somebody is coming very much from the angle of the humanities or or a literary scholar would be approaching it, they would say, oh, there's quite a lot of science in here because it explains things like 
for example, the mechanics of how we go about transplanting an organ, or it explains things like the biomechanics of the foot, or it explains how a neurosurgeon approaches a window in the skull and operates when somebody is awake and uh, able to talk back to them. So it explains those things, but it couches them very much in the broader framework of a, a cultural understanding of the body. And that's what I want to do. I'm trying to take medicine away from the, the white-tiled, cold clinical walls and bring it back into a much broader cultural awareness of what it is to be human. Because being a doctor is to try and help people try to become the best of themselves that they can be in many, many instances. It's a, it's a deeply humane, humanitarian project. It's not just about science. And your references are very cross-cultural as well. For example, in your chapter on the heart, you quote the poetry editor Robin Robertson and poet, mm. who I didn't actually realise was born with a missing chamber of his heart. <laughs> Not a missing chamber, a mi missing valve. A missing valve. A missing valve. Yeah. There's a very beautiful poem by Robin Robertson called The Having that describes the experience of having open heart surgery and having an aortic valve replacement. And, you know, it's a two-part poem and he brings together these very different perspectives, the very mechanical, scientific, I suppose you would say, intensive care perspective on what's actually physically happening to his body. And then the extraordinary feeling of having your blood circulated beyond the confines of your own body and what that does to your sense of self and your state of mind on waking, how that feels to have been kept alive for hours by a machine. And he explores these very eloquently in this poem and, and that chapter uses that poem as a springboard to examine all sorts of ideas about the pulse and the necessity of the pulse to our sense of being alive and our necessity of, of being human. And the heart is obviously a grand organ and a, a very enculturated organ, mm. but you have some quite humble organs here, don't you? Like the inner ear. Yeah. I was fascinated by your stuff on the inner ear. You know, but horrible things happen to people who have inner ear problems and they've only just been sorted mm. in the last 20 years, quite extraordinarily. Yeah, that's right. A lot of people might think that the inner ear is quite a humble part of the body until theirs goes wrong and you realise you you're completely unmoored. It provides your sense of stability, it anchors you in the world in your three dimensions. And if your inner ear is malfunctioning, then you have no sense of where you are. You're constantly seasick on land. And that's a terrible, distressing situation to be in. So tell us about the particular um, problem that one of your patients presented mm. with was sorted. Yeah, there's a type of um, vertigo in the medical sense of vertigo. is not fear of heights, but um, dizziness, dizziness and nausea. And there's a kind of vertigo which occurs Positionally, so if you move your head in a certain position, you become afflicted with these terrible waves of nausea and dizziness. It's a kind of vertigo called BPPV. And an American uh, ear, nose and throat specialist only 20 odd years ago figured out that the way to cure this type of vertigo was actually through a very simple sequence of movements of the head that you can download from the internet and try at home. And it didn't require any expensive microsurgical procedures. It didn't require lots of nauseating drugs with lots of side effects. It was just a very simple sequence of movements. You could put your head through and it would move little chalky particles from within the, the fluids of the inner ear to a place where they didn't cause any problems anymore. And, you know, it's there in the Hippocratic corpus. Two and a half thousand years ago, doctors didn't know how to treat this kind of vertigo. And then somebody figured it out that you could just put your head through a sequence of movements and it was sorted.
Your afterword that you read at the beginning is incredibly humble in terms of the aspirations of the doctor just basically keeping people alive. Mm. But in this, there, you know, again and again and again, you have these amazing solutions that humanity has devised to these terrible afflictions that life throws in, in the way of its patients. Well, it's one of the, the great privileges of practising medicine, I think, is that we straddle so many different spheres of people's lives and it does go from the, the extraordinarily super-specialised neurosurgical procedures that are only possible through large teams of people that have undergone 10, 15 years of intensive training, right down to the most simple things. You know, when I'm, I work in emergency medicine sometimes, often as a GP in a clinic, and, and I just have a little case, a medical bag, and that's me. You know, I'm mobile with that, and I can do very simple, you use the word humble, but yeah, a lot of the things we do are very humble and straightforward. To be able to relieve somebody's chronic earache or to be able to give an explanation for somebody's recurrent headaches and how they might be avoided is something that can be immensely valued by the people that you're handing it out to. Or to be able to find the fetal heartbeat in a mother who yeah. thinks their baby's died. Yeah, it? to reassure a mother that their pregnancy is proceeding normally just by simply listening for a heartbeat and saying, yeah, the heartbeat's there, it's fine. I think um, as doctors, we are extraordinarily privileged and I learned early on that I was far more interested in people and their stories than I was interested in diseases. And so whenever I went into any kind of specialty training, I would quickly get bored because I would realise that all these other problems I was no longer seeing. And I started to see people branded essentially with their diagnosis. And when I moved back to general parts of medicine, like emergency medicine or general practice, the diseases started to fade into the background again and the people and the particular stories of how their problems were affecting them rose once more to the surface. How did you protect the confidentiality of the patients whose cases you describe in this book? Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential that people know when they're either when they're reading this book or when they come to me as patients, because I still practice, that their stories will be protected. And so um, one of the things when I was writing this book, I insisted with my publishers that the first page of the book is a note on confidentiality. And it explains that two and a half thousand years ago, that is the first, well, it's one of the first priorities of the Hippocratic Oath, is it says... Um, says that you won't speak of things that ought not to be divulged. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that word, ought, and what I ought not to say and what I could say. And so all these stories have actually been modified in ways that will make them unrecognisable. Does that not affect the truth of them or the reality of them? Yes and no, in that all the things that are described in there happened, but they might not necessarily have happened to the person that's described. So I may describe a particular situation and I'll use a different patient that I met in a completely different context. So that's a real person, that's a real experience that I've had, but they've been placed in a situation which is novel for what they actually went through. And so both elements of the story in my book definitely happened, they just didn't happen. They didn't coincide in the same individual and so that individual is safe. And I was very scrupulous and careful about that because I feel I know it's possible and some medical writers approach all their patients and ask them and say, I want to write about you. Are you happy with this? And I felt that would put, to do that would put an unbearable pressure on my patients to agree, maybe. Maybe they would be worried that I would be annoyed with them in some way if they didn't agree or I didn't want to put them through that. And, and I was also conscious that people may agree at one stage in their life and another stage in their life it might 
not be, and they might also even want to withdraw consent. And so it's much easier for me to protect them and say that everybody who comes to see me is going to have their stories protected. And all these stories in this book are real in the sense that they happened, but not necessarily to the individual. That's Has described. anybody read, any of your patients read books and recognised themselves? No, because they're all so well disguised. <laughs> A lot of my patients have read my books, though, yeah. They come and talk to but me. But you're so them. far, so far, so good. <laughs> Just just a, a bit about the structure of this. Um, mm. I'm fascinated by the structure. You, it appears that you have a hierarchical structure of the body. You start with the brain. and you, ha- In fact, your very first line is, I was 19 years old when I first held a human brain. Irresistible. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then you work your way down um, to the toes right mm. at the end. Do you feel that there's a hierarchy of the body? No, not at all. I only did it that way because a lot of anatomy textbooks are laid out that way. And I wanted to chart a route through the body, and that is as good head-to-toe is as good a route as any. But I do also say in the uh, prologue that you can read these chapters in any order. It's not prescriptive. And that writing about the kidney or writing about the hip joint, for me, throws up as many interesting dilemmas and reflections on the nature of our humanity and on the possibilities of medicine and of redemption and All these different kinds of grand ideas come up when you're talking about hips as much as they do when you're talking about the human heart. Go on, tell us how it comes up in the connection connection with hips. Well, hips is a good example. So the Tibetans use hip bones and femurs to make trumpets to remind themselves of death because the hip is so um, emblematic of life. And in the book of Genesis, of course, there's a very famous story at the beginning of Genesis when Jacob wrestles an angel and the angel ends the fight with Jacob by dislocating his hip. Because in the ancient Semitic culture of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, the hip was a storehouse of generative energy. People used to swear by putting their hand under their groin, and that's how they would testify and swear. And so the hip was emblematic and symbolic of all these sorts of very profound generative ideas about humanity. And, so, and even now, if you fall and break your hip, For many, many people, that can be a catastrophic event. There's an awful lot of um, frail elderly people find themselves in hospital, immobilised, possibly with worsening pneumonia, just because of a broken hip. And so although we think, oh, it's just a bone, we can just fix it. Actually, it's not that simple. And what that says really is that there is a metaphorical sense to the body, isn't there, which goes far above the pulley systems that we Mm -hmm. sometimes think of it as. Absolutely. And, you know, I've always been a bit confused by that whole post-Descartes idea, you know, that the mind and the body are entirely distinct. And that perspective has been useful to humanity. You know, in the last 350 years since Descartes, we've learned a lot because of that. But it's not ultimately true, you know, because our mind affects our body, our body affects our mind. You know, everybody who suffers from migraines knows that if they don't get enough sleep and they're stressed out, their migraines will get worse. Similarly, people with irritable bowel syndrome know very well that depending on what they eat and how stressed they are, their irritable bowel syndrome will be better or worse. We know that our minds and our bodies are intimately connected. You know, if you drop a brick on your toe, your entire conscious self will be located in your toe for a few seconds afterwards. And it's not that you're dimly aware of something going on at the other end of your body. You're there, you inhabit it. And um, and I think we're only now coming back to that realisation that between the mind and the body, there's no separation. Gavin Francis's award-winning book, Adventures in Human Being, is published by Profile Books and is out now in paperback.
Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands, and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian. Samer Nashef is a heart specialist whose most recent book, The Naked Surgeon, mixes personal anecdote with a tough look at the difficult issue of risk assessment in medicine. We were joined down the line from Scotland by the thriller writer Chris Brookmeyer, whose new novel, Black Widow, sends his burnt-out journalist Jack Parlabane on the trail of a female surgeon whose whistle-blowing sexism in surgery blog has caused her name to be well and truly blackened. Blade Bitch, as she became known, was the then anonymous author of the now infamous Sexism in Surgery blog, which was already causing controversy among medical professionals before it went explosively viral about five years back. Parlabane first had it drawn to his attention by his then-wife Sarah, whose poring over the postings was equally likely to be accompanied by snorts of indignant outrage or cackles of approval, as well as the occasional disbelieving gasp. These were not to indicate incredulity at the content, rather more, oh my god, I can't believe she went there. She called herself Scalpel Girl, but it was the corrupted version that passed into public notice when scandal struck, meaning her chosen moniker became largely forgotten except among the blog's original readership. And eventually, even they had to refer to Blade Bitch if they wanted people to know what they were talking about. Scalpel Girl was part agony aunt and part firebrand polemicist. She collated tales of misogyny that had been sent to her by female surgeons from across the UK, passing on their shocking details and responding with sometimes equally shocking invective. As the blog grew in popularity, the stories started to come flooding into the comments section by themselves. There were copious examples of remarks that female doctors had to listen to, which Scalpel Girl categorised as low-level harassment, constantly reminding the readers that the very constancy of this background hum is both its greatest indictment and its greatest threat. The danger is that we become so used to it that people will cease to notice how wrong it is. Parlabane recalled Sarah delightedly sharing one particular column on this subject with her peers on social media. It was entitled, Are You Too Cute To Be A Surgeon? and began by citing a number of quotes from recently posted accounts, including the one that had given the article its title, looking too nice, too sexy, too homely and too dainty were all apparently contraindicated for a career in surgery, according to male colleagues. This laid the groundwork for a male prescription upon a more specific area of the surgical female's form. I could take her more seriously if those tits weren't so big, one correspondent had heard said of a colleague. A number of similar remarks were cited before being contrasted with quotes suggesting that a display of cleavage or a generous bust had played a part in career preferment. Clearly, there are profound anthropomorphic implications here, Scalpel Girl had written. We have to ask ourselves, what precisely is the optimal breast size for a woman pursuing a career in surgery? Why are there no papers on it? This is one of the scientific controversies of our age, and yet nobody is publishing. According to some sources, we need big tits to get on. And yet, according to others, 
big tits are an impediment to being taken seriously as professionals. The Royal College of Surgeons' ideal standard career tit has to be empirically defined and ought to be offered by breast surgeons as a template for reduction or enhancement. She asked why women were asked to defeminise themselves in order to practice surgery, why feminine traits were typified as weaknesses and masculine traits lionised. We're always told we need to toughen up. Why do we have to be tough? Scar tissue is tough. It is not sensitive. It feels less. To feel less is not a good thing in a caring profession. Sensitivity is feminine. Compassion is feminine. The irony is that it is this overemphasis on the value of masculine attributes that tends to make so many of our male colleagues accurately describable as cunts. Yeah, he had to admit that one was always going to startle the horses. Parlabane thought she came across as too snidey and acidic sometimes, but seeing Sarah's reaction and hearing her colleagues talk about the blog, it was clear that women in medicine loved Scalpel Girl because it felt like she had their back. They took pleasure in her takedowns and they applauded her acerbic tone because you kinda want a badass on your side. That's what she was to them, an anti-hero. Chris, let's start with Diana Yeager. Can you just give us a brief pen portrait of her and explain why she has this horrible moniker? Yeah, uh, well, she, she um, didn't choose the moniker. She uh, is a general surgeon who has been very outspoken about sexism in medicine, the sexism that she's encountered down the years. To that end, she created a blog and she came up with the pen name of Scalpel Girl. Um, but because she managed to upset lots of people, including hospital IT personnel, uh, and she gets her details hacked uh, and doxxed, to use the modern parlance, and she gets rechristened Blade Bitch because she's so acerbic in her opinions. Because it's a thriller, and it's a, a, a thriller that poses the question as to whether she murdered her husband, I was playing on the duality that is sometimes supposed of surgeons that, um, as it's put in the book, the anaesthetists refer to certain surgeons as clever psychopaths, and it plays on the fact that there's perhaps some psychological barrier to be crossed about cutting another human being open. So she's a, a fearsome individual who has had to fight her corner in her field, and I suppose one of the points that I was trying to make uh, is that she feels that when she fights her corner, she gets called a bitch, whereas when a, a male surgeon fights his corner, stands his ground, people say he doesn't suffer fools. Now, it's not the first surgeon you have had in your novels. This is your seventh Jack Parlebane novel, I think. And mm. his ex-wife is a surgeon, so they, she doesn't get very good press from him, at least. Does she? <laughs> no, um, his, his uh, ex-wife was an, an anaesthetist. Oh, she <laughs> like, was an anaesthetist. Yeah, I was thinking um, she was a surgeon the, too. The origin of it was back in the early 1990s during the dawn of the NHS trusts and when my wife was first working in anaesthetics and she was coming home every night with these sometimes incredible stories about what was going on and and so I, I like any good writer, drew upon a, a primary source. So there's, and there is a standoff between anaesthetists and surgeons which is mentioned both in your novel and certainly is referred to in Samer's book uh, but we'll come to that maybe a little bit later. Samer, clever psychopath. Do you recognise yourself in that description in any teeny-weeny respect? I think I definitely recognise the psychopath bit. I'm not too sure about the clever. 
there is a lot of truth in, uh, in, in what's just been said about surgeons generally in that they are a particular type of personality and they need an awful lot of self-confidence and a certain cavalier attitude to risk in order to do what they do. So, yes, there is a lot of truth in that. And some of my colleagues probably are not that far off the end of the psychopathic spectrum, but by no means all of them. You have a paradox, a really dramatic paradox at the centre of your book. And your book, I, I would say, it has quite a lot of crunchy data about risk analysis. But there is this sort of paradox, which is that surgeons are natural risk takers, but we live in a risk-averse society. And there is the possibility that the risk-averse society is actually making them less good at what they do because they're all the time confronted with the consequences of taking risks. Yes, that's absolutely true. I think the attitude to taking risk needs to be refined in a way because without taking some risk, no progress is ever made. So that sort of risk-taking, provided it's done within boundaries and regulations and sensible attention to the welfare of patients, is very, very good. But taking risks unnecessarily just because you like to have fun or you like to live dangerously is not a good idea. And I'm afraid that both of these feature in surgery and in the way surgeons behave. And it's one of the things that I would like to draw attention to particularly in the book, that this is something that we can manage and improve on in order to provide the safer service for patients. You have come across this to your detriment in the past, haven't you? I mean, you, going right the way back to when you were a medical student, you've tried to point out things to other surgeons and they've just completely shut you out. That's the arrogance at play. Isn't oh, the arrogance is definitely very, very strong. And w one of the big problems I had when I was a medical student was that I tried to evaluate the quality of outcomes for a particular operation, um, thinking that my bosses would be delighted to discover my findings, and they were not delighted at all. So I've learned since then that it's a bad idea to criticize surgeons, at least from the point of view of surgeons, and that um, it's not considered the done thing to look into people's outcomes and results as a way of improving them. But that was back in the late 70s. Fortunately, things have changed an awful lot since then. Chris, did you do a lot of research, psychological research, or was this a, just a popular idea of a surgeon that you took on? Because Diana is fascinating because she's, on the one hand, she, she's the narrator, but you're never quite sure how honest she's being. Or she's one of the narrators. It comes from various points of view. But she can be soft and vulnerable. And yet, on the other hand, she's incredibly tough and guarded and hasn't let anybody into her life for a very long time. Well, I suppose the book is trying to explore that duality, that compassion um, and desire to heal that has to be at the heart of um, any surgeon's vocation and yet uh, it being a thriller and it being a, a psychological thriller the impetus was on me to, to make the reader question her motives and whether she is as compassionate as she appears or whether she's very skilled at mimicking <laughs> compassionate behaviour um, in order to mask a sociopathic side. But in terms of research, it's really just a, a matter of uh, having lived with an anaesthetist for a quarter of a century and, and moved in, in her friends' circles, which you know, my, my wife was friends with other anaesthetists and, and surgeons. And so it's about the attitudes and experience that I witnessed. Not so much entirely about the clinical side of it, maybe also very importantly in the case of Diana, uh, about the social side of it because I witnessed um, a lot of, of young women colleagues of my wife who were definitely giving the best years of their life to their career to a very demanding 
greedy career that um, wasn't leaving a lot of time for relationships and for family and it didn't make a lot of accommodations to women to have a family so that was one of the sides of it that I wanted to reflect because I think I, some of my, my wife's colleagues had been reaching the age of, of 40 and, and realising they didn't have anyone in their life and starting to ask whether the, it was worth the price they had paid and fortunately in a lot of those cases they did meet someone in, in one particular instance a, a colleague of my wife did have something of a whirlwind romance, they got married, she managed to have a, a baby quite late and it was real fairy tale stuff but being a, a thriller writer you always think yeah what if it went completely the opposite way you <laughs> know what what if um your desire to believe that uh, you can have it all blinds you to the reality of the person in front of you summer this is obviously something that relates very much to surgeons and also to men you give up an awful lot yes i think both men and women who pursue a career in medicine particularly in hospital medicine and perhaps most particularly in surgery do have to sacrifice some of their family life, social life and the rest of life. Nevertheless, you're a co- you are also a crossword compiler, so you manage to find time in your life to do other things. I do. I do that for fun. It's very enjoyable. Some of the things that you've done in your career have been seem to almost be designed to annoy your colleagues. I mean, I'm not just mentioning your third year dissertation, but your response to the Harold Shipman case. And there we have a real psychopath, but who wasn't actually a surgeon. Tell us about your murder research. Yes, I must say that both books, any murder is fictional. So the murder that takes place in my book is also fictional. But this was, a, on the face of it, it looks like it's a bit frivolous. But this was a serious bit of research, because at the time, there was relatively little to control and measure doctors' outcomes. And Harold Chipman was able to get away with killing hundreds of patients completely undetected because there was no system for monitoring his outcomes, seeing how well his patients were doing. And we just came up with this idea that as we had introduced systems like this at my hospital, Papworth, would they have picked up a Harold Chipman at Papworth? So we pretended that a particular surgeon and anaesthetist at Papworth had suddenly turned into homicidal maniacs and had started killing patients at about the same rate that Harold Shipman was killing them. And we wanted to see how quickly our monitoring system would have picked them up. And they picked them up within months, whereas Harold Shipman went undetected for more than 25 years. And he was probably only detected because he became careless. So even though it was done in a frivolous way, the message was important. You have to have monitoring systems. And your colleagues must have been very indulgent because actually you used, you just turned around the record of one of your fellow yes, <laughs> surgeons. It, it, it and a, then it was picked up by the tabloids, wasn't it? And it, it, was, it was a mock exercise. It was picked up by the tabloids and one tabloid that I will not name actually had a headline which said um, serial killer on the loose in Papworth. So... <laughs> They clearly did not understand a thing about the piece of research, which was published in a very serious journal. Fortunately, we have better newspapers than that. The other side of your book is that you point out how dangerous statistics can be and how ignorant we are, how difficult it is for people to read them. So, for example, we might look at two surgeons' records and we see that one seems to be much more successful than the other, but we don't take into account the fact that one is operating on much more difficult cases than the other. Yes, of course, and there are other statistical quirks that can actually completely distort a layman's attempt to interpret data. And nowadays, 
an awful lot of data is actually available to the public so that if, if you were about to have a heart operation, you can get online and find out all sorts of numbers about all sorts of surgeons and hospitals in the UK. It's all available. You can look me up if you like. It's, it's all out there. But being able to interpret the data does require a little bit of extra knowledge. And th it is this little bit of extra knowledge that I've tried to provide in the book because I think the patient no longer accepts that he or she will be patronized and told what to do by the doctor. Patients now want to make choices, and to make choices you need information, and to interpret the information properly you need certain tools, and these are the tools that I'm trying to make available. We've had an awful lot of stuff in The Guardian about how dire the situation is, the NHS is struggling, money's being cut, we're having problems prioritising things, but you have a very positive message in your book that actually medicine is stronger now than it's ever been, particularly in surgery and your, your oh, profession. absolutely. There is almost no comparison between how good medicine is now and how it was when I started training in Bristol 30 years ago. It's a lot better, it's a lot safer, people take a lot more care, and we also provide, provide a lot more care. We provide many more services and provide them in a better way and in a safer way than we ever used to. I'm very fond of the NHS. I think it's a fantastic organization, and I think if there is one thing that it is missing, it's good funds, resources to do the job properly. You make the point that we put in 9% and other European countries put in some, put yes. considerably more percent yes. of their GDP into it. I think at last count we were just under 9% and I think most advanced countries are in two figures and America is on 18% coming up to 20% and they do not provide a superior health service than we do. So we're also a very efficient service but we could certainly do with a little bit more a little bit more funding in order to do the job well. Now I want to change tack a little bit now and look at the literature of medicine uh, and particularly of surgeons. And I've been sort of doing a little bit of Googling as you do. And there is a wonderful, rich history, particularly the relationship with thrillers. You have found this fantastic um, Michael Crichton anecdote. Um, Sama, would you read it to us? Yes, with pleasure. It, so I'm talking about the awareness of uh, mortality as a measure of outcome for heart surgery. And I say that it's... Uh, it's been there as far back as in the 1960s, as illustrated by Michael Crichton. So Crichton, who died in 2008 at the age of only 66, was a prolific American writer of novels, film scripts, and television series, including Jurassic Park and ER. He developed a keen interest in writing at a young age, but moved from studying literature to medicine while at Harvard Medical School. One of his early novels, A Case of Need, begins with the intriguing statement, All heart surgeons are bastards. A page later, he describes one particular fictional heart surgeon in the following terms. Because Frank Conway was good, because he was an eight percenter, a man with lucky hands, a man with the touch, everyone put up with his temper tantrums, his moments of anger and destructiveness. Many anaesthetists, operating room nurses and trainee surgeons will sympathize with this profile and perhaps recognize some of their own heart surgeons in this damning depiction. But much more important than the vivid description of surgical tantrums is the term eight percenter. This is the surgeon's mortality rate, the proportion of patients who die under the knife, so to speak, or soon after the operation. And of course, we move on from that to the fact that eight percent nowadays is considered appalling mortality. So you, it's about two percent now. Oh, two or less. Yes. Two or less. Mm -hmm. So this book stands in a tradition. There have been several books by surgeons recently. There was Gabrielle Weston. Her book was called Direct Red, A Surgeon's Story, was a, a memoir. Then you had last year you had Henry Marsh's Do No Harm. Yes, of course. Do you feel that you're part of a, a, of a literary tradition of surgeons writing or do you feel you're doing something very different with this? 
with this book, I'm doing something different because what this book does is essentially take a subject about which I'm absolutely passionate, which is the improvement and monitoring of medicine in general. And I try to make this subject, which you might think I'm a geek for saying that, but I actually think it is interesting. I try to make it accessible to the public so that they can see what all the fuss is about. The other books are also interesting in different ways, but whichever way you look at it, books by surgeons talk about surgery, and surgery holds a strange fascination for us. Readers like to know exactly what goes on, and I mean, all you need to do is to watch any of the TV dramas and soaps that are set in hospitals, and it's always surgery that features most. And people love the idea of finding out exactly what happens behind the operating room doors. And most of these books fulfill that need, if you like. Chris, we heard there a little bit from early Michael Crichton. There are plenty of surgeons in thrillers, aren't there? I mean, Hannibal Lecter was a surgeon before he became a psychiatrist. The first thing I, I recognised in that description was the tantrums, because that was something that I've, I've written about in Black Widow, because my, my wife and her colleagues encountered a lot of that. And sometimes it's because of the frustration of, of working under extreme pressure, and if you've just been handed the wrong instrument for the third time, you know, anybody would, would lose it. But um, uh, the, the, the book does try and look at the culture that, that sometimes is indulgent of behaviour that we would otherwise call bullying. Uh, but yeah, in, in, in literature there's, a, there's actually quite a, an established tradition of doctors and surgeons both turning their hand to writing. Although um, in the case of uh, hospital medicine, uh, I think the, the one book that most junior doctors uh, turn to for solace in the sense that they're not alone is a wonderful book called The House of God by Samuel Shem which is all about the realities of the first years as a doctor. Sam is shaking his head enthusiastically. Yes. Oh, yeah, I've, I've, it, it, it contains um, things that would be shocking to, to most people because of the attitudes that, for instance, the, the rules of the house of God, um, and, and it's things like when you if you turn up to a cardiac arrest, the first procedure is to take your own pulse, you know, and um, the first uh, or the, the best delivery of medical care is to do as much nothing as possible. I do want to go come back to Diana and your choice of her as this sort of possible suspect. Talk a little bit more about her and her relationship with Jack. I mean, there's also what's interesting. Jack is a sort of disempowered journalist, isn't he? Increasingly mm. disempowered. And she is somebody who is very empowered in terms of her clinical practice. And she's empowered in terms of her blog. Well, she has at one point been um, very empowered, but you could say she's been disempowered in the most brutal way because... The, the book also is is very much concerned with uh, people's responses to women on social media uh, and I wanted it, this to be a woman who had every reason to be very proud of her achievements because that was always one of the most offensive things to me when people are being abused on social media is that, that these anonymous nobodies can be taking a pot shot at somebody just for sticking her head above the parapet and so she's someone who pays an extremely heavy price but she's also someone who cannot lay claim to being entirely noble in her actions and opinions. She has this very forthright blog which makes a lot of extremely good points and is required reading for um, a lot of other women in medicine. But it is revealed that a lot of the, the anecdotes and the points she was making were actually 
disguised means of settling scores with colleagues. So she does have a, a petty and vindictive side. And I think anyone who has to dedicate so much of themselves to a profession and, and a profession that is so reliant upon attention to detail that requires a certain obsessive personality and that sometimes requires pettiness also. So she's someone who's going to be a formidable opponent uh, under any circumstances and yet it was important to me, given that the story is essentially about a marriage, that the vulnerable human person at the heart of that should come to the fore in the story. You're a writer who has always been very good at sort of picking topical issues and is the topical issue in this the social media abuse is that what sparked you or was it was it also the the medical side no i think primarily it was the social side with regards to someone getting married at a time when she feared she might never get the chance inspired largely by experiences that of my wife's colleagues that was really where it came from i, I just thought well what if the apparent fairy tale romance was actually something that turned into a nightmare? And I um, decided to, to make the, the character a surgeon because of this um, ambiguity that the, the idea of someone who is able to steal herself to, to cut people open and, and is um, very adept uh, with, with a blade, that I thought that would create a, a great deal of tension um, for the reader. So rather than make her an anaesthetist, which I had more. Uh, a more immediate source on. I decided to, to make it a surgeon for that reason. There is another thing these books have in common, which is the risk of going public. Samma, this comes up again and again in your book, doesn't yes, it? Yes, of course. Um, that, that, you know, it's all very well for people to lay open their statistics, but it makes people very vulnerable. I think one of the biggest problems about, and this is the issue of transparency, do, you, do we put all our outcomes out there for people to look at? And in general, transparency is a very good thing and everybody wants to see outcomes and there is no point in hiding things and certainly we wouldn't have had the problems that we had in the Bristol Heart scandal, for example, if everything was Remind us public. about that. Well, it's a long time ago now and I hasten to add that Bristol is now an excellent unit, but the rate of death in children having heart surgery in Bristol was appalling. Between 1984 and 1995, then, wasn't yeah, it? So yeah. The, yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, the, the, the mortality rate was appalling and it was, it was bad for just about every kind of paediatric heart operation. And some people in the know were aware of that, but very few people did. And certainly the parents of the children who took them there did not know. And it eventually exploded. It was exposed in private eye, and then uh, information began to leak out. And then eventually, um, Steve Bolson, an anaesthetist, blew the whistle on it because he'd had enough. He ended up ostracized by the medical profession in the UK and is now working in Australia. So it wasn't a good thing. In general, transparency is good. And the sort of things that happened in Bristol should not really happen. But 171 children, you said, died who wouldn't have died if they hadn't have been at Bristol. That was the conclusion of the Kennedy inquiry into, into the Bristol And that's affair. so shocking. It is shocking, yeah. And that's because mm-hmm. of lack of tra- the sort of transparency you're arguing for that would have enabled this to be spotted and outed it, it, earlier. Well, it should have been spotted earlier and somebody should have looked at the causes. I'm not, this wasn't necessarily that the surgeons were bad or the doctors were bad or the hospital was bad it was just the whole system that was not working well and because it wasn't measuring and it wasn't reacting it wasn't correcting the problem but what many people are not aware of is that transparency itself has got a downside and one of the biggest problems with it is that it makes surgeons more risk averse that means that 
surgeons who are contemplating whether to offer a patient an operation are sometimes looking over their shoulders, thinking about their own mortality figures because they know these mortality figures are going to be published. And if that puts them off, then you could have situations where a patient who would seriously benefit from an operation, albeit a high-risk operation, because the alternative is so poor, um, that patient may be denied an operation or denied the chance of having one because the surgeon is a little bit worried about it. Is that something you've experienced? Um, I have certainly seen it and I have evidence for it because I actually surveyed all the cardiac surgeons in the UK and I asked them anonymously to tell me whether they behave in that way sometimes and whether they see colleagues and behave in that inevitably, way. Inevitably, something like 80% said they had seen people yes. do it, but they didn't necessarily admit to themselves having oh, done it. Oh, a substantial number of them also admitted to doing so it. Like 30% admitted something to doing like it. That, yeah. and, and it does that shock you that figure or was that what you expected it's the figure it's that's reality I, I don't think I'm shocked by it I think in a way it's not that surprising we need to do something to stop them being risk averse when it is not in the interest of the patient for them to do so Samir Nashef's book The Naked Surgeon is published by Scribe Black Widow by Chris Brookmeyer is published by Little Brown. Both are out now. Next week, we're looking forward to the scary future with novelist and polemicist Claire Bay Watkins. You can find us online or install us on your smartphone by searching for Guardian Books Podcast. Until then, from me, Claire Armitstead, and our producer, Susanna Trezillian, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.